we need to, as I tried to bring out in the prayer, have pay great attention to the, the fact that this word of God is the one thing that will last forever. That when we get into an argument on social media, we don't need to have the last word because there's one word that will remain after all human words have been forgotten. That even though it seems like what's on your Facebook timeline will never go away, that, that it, will, it will go the way of all flesh, um, but that the word of the Lord will stand forever so that, um, so that God will um, have the last word. That, that the one thing, if, if we spend our whole lives chasing knowledge or wealth or or any other thing or or trying to even trying to inculcate good values in our children and in uh, in our grandchildren and in the next generation and if we're not and if it's not based on that word that will last forever it will blow away and and as uh, you, Community Reform Church, are going to be um, trying to make decisions about about perhaps calling a pastor and about how to go forward as a church. I pray that you would not make decisions based on how will this church body, in its in its own in its uh, tiny representation here and now in Calgary. How can we make it last a little longer? But that you would make decisions based on there's this great gospel that we have in this word and how can we make it go forth and never come back void and how can we, how can we proclaim the gospel that will last forever? And same for us as Community Grace as we're going back into our season and we're making decisions that we, that we not, I pray that we wouldn't make decisions based on temporary things but on the the word which will last forever. So the word we have before us today is Isaiah 40, and don't worry, I'm not going to preach through the entire thing. I wanted to have it uh, presented here because I, because I do think it hangs together as, as one piece. Um, it's been well recognized as, as the, the pivot in the book of Isaiah from you know who, whoever came along and did the chapter numbers I think probably had that in mind um, that this is a, uh, a pivot point to the uh, uh, the great composer Handel's writing of the Messiah when, when he brings uh, this first verse here and, and some of the verses following um, as uh, the first I would have looked up the word oratorio is that wrong sorry music people if I'm offending you with my misuse of the word anyway um, for the first uh, um, for the first portion of of his uh, of his musical the Messiah um, he uh, he chooses the verse that starts Isaiah 40 here to 
even uh, modern scholarship, which would recognize this as the beginning of, of what they might call Deutero-Isaiah, um, to uh, it even is uh, seen by important as important, I would, I would hope, by the roughly half of all the basketball and football teams in my uh, tiny Christian and homeschool co-op league that were named Eagles because of the verse at the end of this chapter. Um, <laughs> creative. Anyway, um, so, um, so this is certainly the pivot point of, of the book. Your, your Bible probably has it set out as if it's poetic verse, and I think that's right. There is um, great poetry to this section, but um, I think we have focused a lot um, in the, the first few verses, rightfully so. You have two prophecies of the coming Messiah um, in, uh, in 1 through 11. Um, and... And I think there's been plenty of focus on those last few verses about um, about him giving strength so that you won't grow weary and that he, and that you'll run and not be weary and walk and not faint and 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 that's a a blessed promise and 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 I don't want to take anything away from that um, and then you see even what what some scholars here have called the beginning of the the what they call the trial of the false gods because you see tribunal language, judgment language, as if the false gods themselves are being brought before Yahweh and being judged for their falseness. So, and, and so you see that beginning in uh, verse 19, or really technically probably verse uh, 17. And, um, uh, and so I, I think all of those have, have gotten plenty of uh, attention here and there, but, but I think the passage really does hang together on the great God that is depicted in verses 12 through eight, uh, 17. Sorry, 12 through 17. So that's what we'll be focusing on today. But a couple of things I want to point out from the context. Um, first of all, it is clear that this great God is Jesus. We see that because um, in verse in verse 3 through 5, we see that this is a prophecy of John the Baptist who's preparing the way for Yahweh. But when is that applied? John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus. So this great God is Jesus in that passage. And then, of course, that he'll tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his book, gently lead those who are with young. This, is, this shepherd metaphor is used perpetually by Jesus. So, this, um, so he fulfills... Um, this passage as well. So first of all, we can't, we can't make the mistake of thinking that this is exclusively about God the Father. This, this great God being depicted here is Jesus. Secondly, let's point out that the greatness of God comforts God's people. The very first line, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And, and what's supposed to comfort them? Yes, that, um, that the Lord is coming, that all flesh will see it together, um, that uh, that he's coming with might and his arm rules for him and, and all those things um, should be comforting to God's people, terrifying to those who aren't God's people, comforting to God's people. Um, and uh, um, But one of the 
but the great reason that that should be comforting to God's people is because of the great God, the greatness of God comforts God's people. Um, this greatness of God is proclaimed by the only word which will stand forever. We've meditated on that already. Um, and obviously we see that in verses 6 through 8. Um, it overcomes the folly of the nations. Um, we see that in verses 17, 23, um, and there was another one. Anyway. Um, but uh, um, so it, it overcomes the folly of the nations and it puts their idols to shame. Uh, we see in verse 19, um, he's frankly mocking the idols of the nations. Um, so we see these, um, these things from the context and we're prepared now to, to dive in um, to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So the picture here is of our great Yahweh measuring out the oceans in the part of his hand that you might use to measure out a dash of salt whatever a dash of salt is, but it's the same sort of idea that the same way that you might measure out salt before you throw it in the pot, that, that the Lord here can measure out the waters in the hollow of his hand. For the Israelite people at this time, um, they were not a seafaring people. They used the oceans to express infinity the same way we might use outer space. And it makes sense for people who weren't accustomed to crossing oceans without ever touching them on a four-hour plane ride. The ocean represented fairly permanent and often lifelong or even life-ending separation. And seas don't express infinity to us quite the same way um, because they're so easy to transverse now. But, of course, they're still enormous did you know that if we removed every single fish and every single ship from the ocean, it would only lower the water level by about two strands of a spider web? So that's, so that's every animal that God has made to swim in the oceans and, and every battle carrier group <laughs> that we've made to sit in the oceans by we, not particularly Canada, but anyway. Um, <laughs> every battle carrier group that's ever been crafted by humankind and, and actually the vast majority of what we've put out on the ocean um, uh, happen to be oil and iron ore uh, tankers in terms of uh, tonnage at least. And, um, um, and if we were to remove every single fish and every single ship, less than two strands of a spider web, the ocean would drop. Or that if we put a drain the size of this sanctuary in the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean, and somehow that caused it to actually drain, don't think about it too hard, the sea level would drop by less than a centimeter per day. Of course, if we do do that at some point, uh, thousands of years in the future, um, the Dutch would no longer have to spend their energy uh, fighting back the oceans and would take their rightful place as rulers of the greatest empire in world history, I think. That, that's the obvious outcome of that. Anyway, 
But the point is, the oceans are un almost unfathomably big, as indeed the English measurement of six feet of water, water depth a fathom, coming to be a word for understanding or measuring something of enormous scope would seem to indicate. And even after the Roman Empire dominates the nearest sea to Israel, the Mediterranean, and they're crossing it daily, no problem except during the winter, with, um, with ships, John the Revelator writes of a raging sea separating from the presence of God in the current heaven, but then in the new heaven, there is no sea. The sea represented danger. It represented separation. It represented near infinitude. But then our real almighty infinite father comes and scoops it up to get a better look. No danger can endanger him. Nothing can separate us from him. Nothing, however seemingly big, is not dwarfed by our God. Can you see why this is supposed to comfort God's people? Do you have a kid or a spouse or a dear friend who is far from God? Not really. The very symbol of separation fits in his hand. Are you facing a stormy sea you don't think you can cross? Good. You probably can't. But the God you serve could pick it up and toss it over his shoulder without getting wet. We see that he also, it says he marked off the heavens with a span. A span in this context is a, is a handbreadth. So this is the comparison to space that we're more apt to understand and be in awe over. The heavens are so large that we're at a loss to truly understand their size. But here's my best attempt to wrap my brain around it. There are enough stars in the heavens that even Abraham, with no telescope, couldn't count them. And some of what he would have seen as one star is actually two or a nebula or an entire galaxy. And, and when one of those stars dies and collapses in on itself, uh, it's called, it creates what's called a supernova. It, it puts off an absolutely astounding amount of energy. In fact, which do you think would pound your eyeball with more energy? Um, standing on the earth and looking at the sun as it went supernova or holding a hydrogen, hydrogen bomb and pressing it against your, your retina right as it exploded. If you think it's the sun going supernova, you'd be right. By nine orders of magnitude, the amount of untamable energy that is contained in just one of these stars in, in this vast heaven uh, is, is almost impossible to comprehend. And the fact that this amazing amount of power is being unleashed somewhere in the universe right now, and it is not the number one worry at the top of your mind, gives you a hint of how vast these heavens are. Our Lord made all that, every heavenly body, all the vast space between them, all their complex movements with a word. And he didn't need an iTunes user agreement worth of words to make sure that one of those supernovae didn't explode near the earth while he was making something else. His wisdom and mastery of the universe are so great they defy our comprehension. 
Uh, you've heard of measuring horses with the unit of hands. This is Yahweh, the general of the armies of heavenly angels, uh, measuring out his faithful steed, the heavens, hims- heavens themselves. And as verse 26 says, he can call forth every star in the sky like a general, calling forth troops from their tents. But this Lord of hosts has no stragglers and no deserters. Every element in the heavens heeds his command. There is no stray molecule in the universe that does not answer to its maker. So just as this passage was originally intended to shame those who engaged in star worship, let this account of our Lord shame us from the idol of self-reliance. If a star, more powerful in a single second than all the combined force of every muscle in your body for your entire lifetime, cannot resist his command, what chance do your attempts to bend his universe to your will stand? If he can mark off the heavens with his hand, what can your hand accomplish that could resist his? I, I love the term skyscraper because these great towers that we build are the pinnacle of human achievement. But even with the name, we recognize that they barely scratch the surface of the lowest level of the heavens. And God ended the first one in human history, not even with a word, which could have caused the earth to swallow it whole if he'd wanted, but with an afterthought. All the plans of every human alive are nothing compared to an afterthought of the Holy One. It goes on, it says, He has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. With such a big and powerful God as this, we may be tempted to think that he limits his attention to big things. Wrong. A speck of dust or Mount Columbia, it does not escape God's scrutiny. From the fall of the smallest sparrow to the rise of the largest empire, nothing passes his notice. Just as there is no piece of dirt, however small or large, that he does not search out and learn every intimate detail about, there is no human heart that he does not know better than we know our own heart. This is the pre-answer to the objection of God's wayward people in verse 27. They say, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right disregarded by my God. In other words, they think God is busying himself with important things and can't be bothered by my problems. The answer when we get there is, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, he does not run out of time or grow weary in his attention like we do, that that he, he does not have to devote one part of his mind to making sure that the solar systems keep spinning any more than you have to devote part of your mind to making sure that neurons are firing in your brain. It's just what happens as part of you uh, being you and that, and that um, he's not like a person who either has a lack of time to give attention to things or who has a lack of attention to give attention to things, um, but that he that he intimately searches out all of creation um, from the beginning even till now. What a contrast to the false gods. Elijah had fun with it. 
Maybe Baal is on a long journey, or maybe he's asleep, or maybe he's in the washroom and you're interrupting. Shout louder, cut yourselves deeper, sacrifice more things. Maybe that will force him to listen. But were those prophets of Baal any more foolish than a modern idolater who cuts themselves ever deeper under the knife of the plastic surgeon to get attention from the God of this age? What about the parents who sacrifice more and more cash so their son can have the best coaches in the video game Fortnite, not because they expect him to make money playing it, uh, but because they must make sacrifices to the deaf-mute god of meaningless, vicarious success? Or how about people who have no product or service to market? Nevertheless, they're taking social media marketing classes online in the hopes they can shout ever louder to the earless god of mass approval and acclaim. And maybe you don't do any of those things, but I bet if you meditate long enough on why each of these pursuits are foolish, you will realize the same reasoning reveals the foolishness of something you have pursued. I know it has for me. The mind that is set on the flesh cannot see why any worldly pursuit is foolish, so someone in that mindset will compare anything I just mentioned to things they justify completely and conclude these pursuits are not so foolish. With mindset on the spirit, we must reverse that reasoning and count more and more quote-unquote normal things as worthless in the light of our higher calling. Don't take this as condemnation if your conscience is pricked. Only a regenerate person would feel that. So I say gently with the Apostle John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And we ask, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? So this Lord of all creation, so obsessed with measuring and knowing the intimate details of everything, small and great, can he be measured? No. First of all, he is spirit and not contingent upon his creation, not material, not something that can be weighed on even the most accurate scale. Of course, we know that this completely independent one became absolutely dependent. We know that this immeasurable one became a little baby, and we measure little babies like we're Pharisees trying to tithe on every fraction of a gram. This chapter contains two prophecies of this Jesus, as we've already said. He is the one for whom the way is prepared in the wilderness in verses 3 through 5, and the gentle shepherd in verses 9 through 11. You want a message to bring to the nations? You should. We are the Zion referred to as the one to get up on a high mountain and proclaim the coming of this Lord. You want a message to bring to the nations? Don't miss the absolute offense of the immeasurable one becoming intimately measurable. Our Sikh and Hindu neighbors miss the uniqueness of the one infinite and immeasurable God. Our Muslim and Jehovah's Witness neighbors miss the intimacy of that one infinite and immeasurable God taking human form and dwelling among us measurably. We can't win either of them to our message if we can't grapple ourselves with the absolute otherness of God before we get to Jesus. To the Sikh and Hindu, he will be just another guru who discovered how to harness this spark of the divine like any of us can. To the Muslim and to the JW, we will seem to be denying the uniqueness of Yahweh. 
We do not. The word for Lord in verse 3 is Yahweh, and in verse 10 it's Yahweh Elohim. But both of these passages are freely applied to Jesus by the New Testament. Thus, Jesus is Yahweh. And the spirit of Yahweh referred to here in this, in this very verse is likely the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The one being of God, appropriately named Yahweh, is equally shared by three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, with no confusion between the persons. If you need help understanding this or defending it from Scripture, please contact me or, or, or any of the other uh, people who have, who have had some experience in the, in the Word and in and defending um, this gospel to the nations. Um, there are many Christians who cannot defend this central doc- doctrine, so you are by no means alone if you need help, but you have neighbors and co-workers who need to know Jesus for who he truly is. they're part of these nations that we're about to see can just be blown away like they're dust. And, and how can they hear if they don't have a preacher? How can they hear if we don't tell them? And moving on in the same verse and then I'll pick up the pace and, and address this to all of the next verse. Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Remember Job, where Job eventually gets to the point where he says, I don't understand what God is doing, and I wish I could have an interview with him so I could learn. Of course, his friends are even more foolish and say it this way. We do understand how God is working, so you must be unrighteous or he wouldn't be doing this. And God comes in at the end and gives them a talk, both, both sides a talk very much like this. <laughs> of course, we generally aren't so foolish as to contend that God should hire out our full-service consulting firm. Uh, no, God, it seems like you have that Leviathan thing figured out, and the path of Nant- Neptune seems just dandy, uh, and it it really seems like you've nailed the correct values for uh, gravity and electromagnetism and all that. Um, Where we, just like Job and his friends, feel like we have some expertise is in that middle category, the path of justice. We freely admit with our lips that our all-wise God knows more than we do, but in our hearts we say, if I could have chosen the path of my own life, I would have chosen one that was more fair, more just to me. God does not need to be taught the path of justice. Look, I know that's difficult. Dad, you might feel stuck in a job that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself, and you'd like to get home and lead your family in devotionals, but it just drains you physically, emotionally, and spiritually, this job, and you get home with nothing left. Or, Mom, God promised you that in pain you would bear children. And boy, is that ever true. Because the actual childbirth was one thing. But where's the epidural for your heart when your six-year-old breaks his arm? And where's the morphine when you really need it, when your teenager denies the faith you raised her in? 
Or are you just trying to live the Christian virtues you know are right, but we're in a world that's increasingly sick, and it's just too complicated these days to be in the world and not of it? Remember the context of these words. You are serving a God who is big enough to handle this. But he's not just big enough. He's close enough to your broken heart to heal it. He's made you a herald of a great and glorious gospel. He's given you the only words that will last forever. He gently leads those who are with young, and he will renew your strength so you will not faint. He is sending his own special people into exile with this reminder that the God of all wisdom does not need lessons in justice. And he will one day call us all back from our exile in every corner of the earth to return to Zion and end all our striving. goes on, behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket, from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. The nations are like a drop from the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales, unlike the false gods who need great nations to rise up and fight their battles for them, to expand their territory, to carry them to new lands and build them new temples there. God has already said that the great empire that is coming to subjugate his special people is like an axe in his hand. In Proverbs, he says, the heart of the king is like rivers of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The nations do not carry this God around. He carries them like they were nothing. He is not a local deity whose authority can only travel as far as one system of government. Psalm 2 paints a picture of all the kings and rulers of the earth conspiring against the Lord of hosts to throw off his yoke. And doesn't it sometimes seem like the only thing that all the politicians of the world could ever agree on is to defy God and do something evil? Do you ever look at the rulers of this world and lose heart? Do you waffle between anger and depression? You know what God does? He laughs! Because all the combined authority of every human ruler is like a fine patina of dust that gathers gathers on the scales of Yahweh's justice. He can just... Sorry, sound guys, if that did something weird. Uh, He can just blow it away without a thought. (coughs) So Nazis can get away to South America and die of old age, never made to account for their crimes in a human court, and we do not despair. Pol Pot can die in the woods before having to face a tribunal, and Mao Zedong can die of complications from smoking as the undisputed leader of his country. A young man can survive one of those horror shows of the 20th century, the Dachau concentration camp, only to come to Canada and become a a pioneer in the murder of unborn babies, becoming the first doctor in North America to rip the baby out with a vacuum, a practice he taught widely across this continent which earned him the Order of Canada and near universal acclaim from the rulers of this world. We know that human tribunals and human honors do not hold the last word. Only one word will stand forever. We read on in verse 16. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. We see here just a hint of the grace and mercy that this great God shows us. 
because you could cut down every tree in a nation famous for its trees and not have enough fuel to build the sacrificial altars he actually deserves. Because you could slaughter every animal on the planet and sacrifice it on an altar fueled by every tree on the planet, and it would not be enough to make up for your violations of his holy law or to appropriately honor him for who he is. If we killed all the cute animals, like puppy dogs and kitty cats, leaving humans with no companionship in the animal kingdom, is his love not enough? And if we burned up all the useful ones, like horses and oxen, we've established that the God we serve is more powerful than every beast of burden combined, and the resulting economic collapse is nothing compared to one millisecond of his righteous judgment. If we sacrificed all the tasty ones, like cows and chickens, then we as a globe have only said what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah said. Let the king eat the king's food. As for us, we know that our God can keep us healthy on this crummy kale and quinoa and whatever. If we set out to slaughter all the animals that want to slaughter us back, like tigers and sharks, then we need only remember that for those same Hebrew children, God shut the mouths of lions and before that killed all but two of every lion, tiger, bear, and dinosaur in holy judgment. So to get practical about this one, the majority of what you are worried about sacrificing to please God is embarrassing compared to even the tiny amount he demands you sacrifice, which is in turn embarrassing compared to what he could demand by right. And if you ever walk up to a pastor or a member of a worship team or a fellow church member and say, I didn't like the worship, first of all, um, they should mention that uh, the worship continues when the sermon continues, the worship continues when you get up, leave the pew, and go work for the rest of the week. Wor- worship is everything that we offer to this holy God. But if you say, I didn't like the worship, they will probably fi- try to find out and see if anything can be fixed, but they probably should say through tears, good, we weren't worshiping you. We were worshiping the God who demands worship involves sacrifice. And even though he shouldn't have liked the worship, even though he should have found it insulting that evil lawbreakers like us should dare to approach him, even though he should find the greatest performance of Handel's Messiah not fit to the majesty of its subject matter, he liked the worship today. Isn't he amazing? I need a little water after that. (coughs) And then finally, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Remember, this book is written to a nation that is about to go into captivity to a great empire. These are God's own special people and they're being made subjects to a heathen nation. All the nations do not seem so insignificant in this context. Just as they don't seem insignificant when they're killing our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. And to the Hebrew people in exile all those years, or to our modern modern martyrs, should have tried saying that one before I got up here, our modern witnesses with their blood to the faithfulness of Christ, it must seem like God is giving the nations too long before he interjects his last word. 
the scoffers say, where is the promise of his coming? The faithful simply implore, how long, O Lord? And the great promise of this book is that Yahweh will vindicate his people in front of the nations he is using to punish and purify them now. As D.A. Carson writes of verse 27, the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he is too great to care. The right one is that he is too great to fail. So we, we want to humbly take in this, um, this word, which will have the last word o- over all of human history. We realize that this great God that we're talking about here is, is Jesus. That this greatness of God comforts God's people, comforts us. It is proclaimed by the only word which will stand forever. It overcomes the folly of the nations, and it puts their idols to shame. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have too often, rather than complain, uh, rather than proclaiming you as the great God over all the nations, we have too often uh, adopted the idols of the nations. We've too often decided that worldly, worldly standards of justice and knowledge and success would be our standards. We humbly confess that we've, that we've greatly wrong, wronged you, our great God, and we, we pray that you would help us to smash these idols in our own heart. Um, that that we would realize that we can only we can only turn to an idol when we have first denied you Yahweh. So we pray that um, that you would help us to respond to the uh, the pricking of our conscience and consciences and to uh, um, redevote ourselves to uh, to you and your true worship alone. We pray that as we uh, come together at this table to remember uh, the sacrifice that you gave, sending your own son to take away all the stain of our idolatry and give us new hearts that are able to worship you, that are able to exult in the Yahweh that created them. We, uh, as we gather around this table, we pray that we would um, understand the, the absolute seeming impossibility of that sacrifice, that you, the Holy One of all creation, would, would come and bear send your son to bear your own wrath that we deserved. And we uh, we pray, Lord, that as we uh, continue on in our week, that you would uh, give us the wisdom to know that you are wiser than us. And 
make us big enough to realize that you're bigger than us. That you are too too big to fail and that we uh, have you uh, coming to carry us up as, a, as if on eagle's wings um, whenever uh, whenever we call out for you and uh, and avail ourselves of your mighty power. We pray all these things in the mighty name of your son Jesus to your glory and for our benefit. Amen. Tom, if you'll